Welcome everybody to the October 22nd QPSC. Uh, as a reminder to all in light of COVID-19 and in accordance with government and health safety regulations, we're calling for social distancing, we're conducting this meeting uh, virtually as we've been doing for the past few months. There is no public meeting space uh, associated with this meeting. By way of a convention, we will go into roll call and a reminder that immediately after roll call to the audience, we go directly into closed session uh, where we uh, do 1157 protected items. We anticipate that closed session will be relatively short today. So we, uh, I'm estimating less than 15 minutes. So I, I graciously ask you to stay on hold, listen to the elevator music, and we'll see you when we get back. Uh, so with that, uh, uh, let's go to roll call. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Sheeklin. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, audience, we're going to go into closed session. We anticipate less than 15 minutes, knock on wood. Thank you. Yes, and just to be clear, the closed session is as set forth in the agenda. With that, uh, uh, we're out of closed session. Uh, I'll re-welcome everyone again to the October 22nd uh, QPSC. We just finished closed session where we discussed matters of, uh, uh, of credentialing and co had conference with legal counsel. With that, we'll move into item B, which is the consent, ag consent agenda. We have three items on this consent agenda. The first are the minutes of the September 23rd QPSC. The second is approval of privileges from the Chief of Staff Committee, specifically a teleneurology multi-facility form. And item B3, approval of policies and procedures. There are seven from Alameda Health System, one from San Leandro Hospital, and one from the med staff. Uh, may I entertain a motion to uh, approve the consent agenda in its entirety? That, was that a motion? Uh, got, I, I, so moved. Sorry. Um, uh, and a second. Got it. I think Lewis is. So I'll, I'll open up this up for any dialogue. Or is there any dialogue from the trustees? with regard to items B1, B2, or B3. There, there were a lot of uh, forms uh, there, but not as much as we usually do. So I am very happy about that. I'll made, make note I was particularly pleased with one of the uh, policies and procedures, the prevention of unplanned retained items. Uh, which has uh, been a concern uh, and issue for us previously. So I'm, of course, happy to see that policy and procedure updated. Uh, given no other commentary, all in favor of approving uh, item B? Aye. Aye. Uh, against? None. <laughs> Abstentions? None. With that, we carry item B. Um, thank you very much. We'll close out item B. We are through A. Item C, the, uh, this is our, our placeholder for the QPSC chair discussion. Um, and I'll open it up as follows. I, I think it can be said that our organization is at a crossroads right now. And in that backdrop, I chose uh, this month's learning articles. They are in your packet for those of you who are good students and do your reading. Uh, the first one is called a Changing Organizational Mindset. It comes from the venerable Stanford Social Innovation Review, uh, a, 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 a very interesting journal. And the other is called The Great Refounding. 
I'd like to uh, read a few excerpts for those because I think they're good for all of us who care about change management and culture, which I would argue is probably every single person in this room and anyone who cares about this organization. I'll start out with the changing organizational mindset uh, and to take a few brief comments from this. Um, and th this, is, this is the author in the article and with some commentary from me. For decades, we've been taught the, uh, to regard organizations as nothing more than elaborate clocks, cogs, sprockets, gears, all for us to tune and perfect. What if this is the wrong metaphor? What if the truth is more complex? We live in an organization which is complex and complicated. Um, this organ, the, the question of complexity and complication are, are different ones asserted by the author in this article. So uh, again, to paraphrase, we know what complexity feels like, but most of us don't know what it actually means. We use words such as complicated and complex interchangeably as synonyms for anything we find confounding. Picture the engine inside a car. Is it complicated or is it complex? Make up your mind and hold that thought for a second. It's kind of like a classroom here. <laughs> when I challenge audiences with this question, roughly half the people vote confidently for complicated, while the other half vote confidently for complex. Now, what about traffic? Is traffic complicated or is it complex? Contrary to popular, to popular opinion, among people who study systems theory, complicated and complex are distinct words with precise meanings. The engine inside a car is complicated. A complicated system is a causal system, meaning it's subject to cause and effect. Although it may have many parts, they will interact with one another in a highly predictable manner. Problems with complicated systems have solutions. This means that within reason, a complicated system can be fixed with a high degree of confidence. It can be controlled. That's not to say that a complicated system can't be confusing or inaccessible to the layperson. Quite the contrary. Understanding a complicated system such as an engine or a 3D printer requires specialized expertise and experience. Complex systems are typically made up of a larger number of interacting components people, ants, brain cells, startups, all these come together for adapt to give exhibit adaptive or emergent behavior without requiring necessarily central command. As a result, complex systems are more about relationships and interactions among their components than about the components themselves. And these give and these interactions give rise to unpredictable behavior. If a system surprises you or has the potential to surprise you, it is complex. While many of the activities and outputs of organizations are indeed complicated, the organization itself is complex. Accordingly, organizational culture isn't a problem to be solved. It's an emergent phenomenon that we have to cultivate. Complexity conscious leaders view performance as the result of collective intelligence, emergence and self-regulation. If we can just create the right conditions, everyone will continually find ways to achieve our goals. And in closing on this article, to the legacy leader, 
everything still looks like a factory. And all our problems can be fixed if we work long and hard enough. But our bureaucracies are no match for complexity. They can't handle the, the surprises that we face every day. And worse, they'll, surprise, they'll never surprise us with an unexpected breakthrough. If we continue to treat the complex like it's complicated, we'll spend our careers frustrated that control is always just beyond our grasp. Gripping so tightly, we'll forget about the magic that can happen when we let go. I found it to be a powerful article. Um, I, I, I hope you do too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize uh, from the great refounding and then I'll of course open it up for dialogue. We're still on time. So um, uh, this is my second to last official meeting here uh, on the current board. So let's have a run at it. Uh, this is uh, from uh, something called the great reset series. And, and uh, I wanna read to you some, some comments which I thought were powerful here. This, we're currently in a period of radical change where there are acute problems and needs that span all markets and all nations. The Great Reset represents both an existential crisis as well as an opportunity. It's a challenge that requires incredible leadership, ambidextry, and flexibility. To, su to succeed at this challenge, entire organizations need to do more than address changes in supply or demand or rebalance their operations. To succeed, leaders need to, quote, refound their business from the bottom up. They need to become refounders. Those who succeed at refounding their organization will go on to serve the world. Those who neglect to do so will become increasingly irrelevant with amazing speed in the new and emerging world. There's a nice little quote from uh, a Kennedy School researcher in here. Uh, which I think is a nice metaphor for what we're talking about here. Most organizations exist in a stable equilibrium. That's why they're so hard to change because anytime you try, restoring forces push it back to where it started. Think of a marble resting in a bowl. Trying to change the organization is like flicking that marble. It will move around in the bowl for a while, but most of the time it'll settle back down at the bottom, right where it started. In a crisis, your organization is much easier to change though. Why? Because a crisis shatters a bowl. Your company can stay in its old stable equilibrium. If it could, it wouldn't be in a crisis. Before the crisis, your job was to tweak the bowl, patch the cracks, maybe even change its shape slowly over time so that the marble eventually gets where you want it to be. But now in a crisis, you have to build a new bowl you have to take all the old pieces and remake them into a new shape. Now it can be a much better one because you're not constrained by the shape of the old bowl. And I'll stop my pontificating there. Um, trustees, any comments on that? And then I'll open it up to, uh, to other leaders in the organization. I would just say that everyone here needs to recognize this is a moment in Alameda Health System history, but it's also a moment in your own personal careers. Um, and what will make the biggest difference in how you come through what's about to take place will depend upon whether or not you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And um, if you look those up, 
You'll see a lot of material on that from an author named Carol Dweck, who's a researcher that looked at why do some people um, go through challenges and succeed anyway, and others give up. And I think that what's before us here is a true opportunity to reshape that bowl. But it does take a growth mindset. It takes looking at what isn't working and what's not right and having a lot of courage to say, you know, between us all, we'll have the wisdom to do what's right, to fix it, to make it work. But it is an opportunity and it isn't just Alameda Health System as a entity. I think it's up to each of you to take a moment, take a breath, get a hold of what's about to happen and understand that if you formulate a growth mindset, you can come through this and hopefully that bull looks a lot better and uh, uh, is more engaging and supports you with what you wish, what you wish to do, so. Thanks, Trustee Fernandez. Trustee Shaquin, any comments? Nope. Got it. Okay. None that you wanna hear. <laughs> What's that? None that I wanna share or, or, or anyone wants to hear. Got it. <laughs> Um, any other comments on that? All right, with that, we'll close item C. Let's move to item D, which is a report and discussion from the medical staff. Um, remember uh, that uh, to our medical staff reps, uh, we have an agenda item at the full board of trustees. So uh, this is a placeholder for you uh, to bring out any items which are uh, specific and relevant to the quality uh, portion of what we do. Otherwise, please recall that you have a full agendized item at the full board of, of trustees. Um, uh, Dr. Besh, Dr. Marzouk, Dr. Ingenier, any comment uh, for this agenda item? Uh, just as reported in the in the packet. Thank you, Dr. Besh. I have no I have no particular new items uh, to discuss. I have a brief report. No major revelations at San Leandro campus. Okay, so that will be for the full board? Yes. Got it, thank you, sir. Dr. Marzouk, sir. Uh, the same, uh, nothing uh, to add. Uh, I'll leave any comments in the full board. Wonderful, thank you. With that, we will close item D. Moving along on the agenda, we are at item E. This is gonna be a, a culture of safety and a just culture report. Just to remind everyone, and I always like context, at the last meeting, we had uh, uh, an ongoing discussion as we try and strive to do here about culture and safety as they are so intertwined. Uh, we asked uh, Darshan Graywall and Hazel DeLeon to, to uh, bring us kind of uh, to frame set kind of where we are and maybe to contextualize directions on things that we need to do or perhaps directions we need to go. So with that, I'll give uh, the mic uh, to you, to Darshan and Hazel. Welcome. Darshan, I, you might be on mute. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Bouquet. Okay. Um, can you see my screen? We can, we can, tech is good. Oh, excellent, excellent. 
Well, I, I uh, want to thank the Board of Trustees and our executive leadership team uh, in providing Hazel, DeLeon, and myself the opportunity uh, to introduce the concepts of just culture and the culture of safety, which we've um, addressed uh, during previous uh, board meetings. And um, not only the importance of it, but how AHS uh, can look towards adopting some of these essential principles of just culture in our journey towards high reliability. Um, just, uh, I wanted to give an overview of the discussion today. Um, in our journey towards high reliability, um, AHS requires some foundational changes to achieve this level of success. Uh, one being our just culture, which is a nationally recognized uh, methodology used in um, high reliable organizations like aviation, military, healthcare, and many, many other organizations where, like you had mentioned, Dr. Bouquet, there's a lot of complexity um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's complicated, it's, it's complex, it's, um, uh, there's a lot going on. So just culture and a culture of safety are very highly recognized in those types of organizations. And then after Hazel and I present, we would like to share our proposed next steps uh, for AHS to move forward and uh, uh, leave room for some uh, questions and answers. Um, okay, um, so for just a moment, I just, I, I want, us to just pause and um, think about, you know, what a just culture is and what it means to AHS. Um, and I'm going to give you sort of my uh, sort of feeling on it and reading the literature and seeing what I've seen for the last two years. So again, I'm not a, uh, I'm going to just speak authentically from my heart and what I've seen and what I know, but I know there's various interpretations of everything that we're going to talk about. So when I think about a just culture um, and, and how what that would look like at AHS, it would be um, to successfully want to continue our journey towards a high reliable, high reliable organization, a culture that is fair and open to improve the quality and patient safety of the of, of our patient outcomes. Um, we would be an organization that would empower employees to proactively monitor and address their workplaces and participate in continuous patient safety efforts. In a just culture, uh, both the organization and its people are held accountable while focusing on risks, system designs, human behaviors, and ultimately patient safety. Now imagine AHS as a just culture. We actually learn from our mistakes and near misses. We don't run away from them. We actually embrace them as an opportunity. Our expectations are clear. They're not, they're not, they don't vary. They're standard, they're clear. We all know what we need to do. A culture of continuous learning and improvement. We never get complacent. We always look for opportunities to continuously put innovation, um, uh, creative ideas, and we engage everyone. And then consistently reliable. 
when, when there's failure, we step back and we look at redesigning. A high morale. Um, I think all of you would agree with me. Sometimes we question the morale of not only our providers our, our, and our frontline staff. And that's when I envision just culture, all of those things would transpire as a benefit, as an added benefit to just culture. Now, we, when we look at this very um, popular model, but it's, it's got a lot of simplicity to it as well. I had already mentioned about creating an open, fair, and just culture because we really need to empower everyone. Where there's fairness and transparency, people will be willing to speak up. When things go wrong with our design or, or just human nature, when things go wrong, we have to embrace it as a learning culture and really um, uh, not do a blame and shame type of a, a reaction. When we see something is not working, look for opportunities to have a, an effective, effective design change if possible. We can't be practicing medicine from the 1970s or the 1980s or systems when we are now in the 21st century. We have to look at what has changed and the innovations that need to be put in place to make it safer. And when we make choices, we have choices within those systems. Pause and make a choice that's going to be safer rather than easier or whatever the norm is. So really looking at, at how we do things, why we do things, and the choices that we make to result in those outcomes. So in a just culture, this is the basic model. It's pretty simple when you look at it. It's pretty simple, but organizations have a difficult time either grasping it, implementing it, and living it. So a lot of, you know, we're, we're human, so we're fallible. Errors are gonna happen no matter what we do. There, we cannot be an error-free type of organization or, or um, uh, entity because errors will happen where there's humans, that's just, we're fallible. But there's human errors, which are things that happen not intentionally, but because, you know, there might be a lapse of memory or there might just be a person forgot or, are, are just a, a very human error. And those are opportunities that we take to uh, console or, or, or address in real time. And then there's behaviors that are at-risk behaviors. A person knows that they're not doing the right thing, but they make a conscious choice to, to not do the long process or the 10 steps it takes to administer a medication. And those we use we, we, we have a choice to do those. And because there hasn't been harm or we think it's justifiable, we continue to do it because everybody else does it. It's like speeding. I think um, uh, Dr. Bouquet had mentioned or Dr. Hernandez had mentioned about speeding. You know, we all know it's wrong to speed, but we all do it because everybody else does it and we feel that the risk is justified. And then there's the, there's the far right, which is reckless behavior. It's egregious behavior when you know consciously that you're disregarding all the rules, all the policies, and you're still gonna do it because you've convinced yourself that, hey, I've never been caught. I'm gonna do this and there's never been any consequences, so I'm gonna continue to do this because harm has not happened. So there's three distinct areas which can help us, help us manage when things do happen. 
So I'm going to just give examples. The most threatening behavior is this middle one, at-risk behavior, because I think we're all guilty of doing that. We cut corners. We do workarounds. I mean, that we're historically in healthcare, um, workarounds are probably very, very common for every one of the providers in this room. Uh, we do it routinely. We think that the rules or the policies are just too stringent. I mean, do I really need eight steps to give a medication? Okay, I've done this a thousand times. Uh, I, I don't think like a second independent check is, is really necessary. Our nurse, can you look at this? And from a distance, that nurse is actually not doing a second, truly a second independent check. They just sort of take your word for it. There's a lack of enforcement. Management gets frustrated too. Okay, well, I mean, everybody's doing it. We, we've been a harm-free unit. Okay, I, I, I guess it's okay. So what you don't correct, you condone. So you actually add to the problem. New employees might see that everybody else is violating it. A lot of times, sometimes we get a new person from a different organization and they're a little perplexed when they go on to the units and they see things being done a certain way. And they say, wow, that's unsafe practice. But after time, they become just like everybody else because if they create too much noise or too much resistance, then, then, then they're an outcast. So they become the norm as well. Maybe there's not enough staff or there's not enough resources to do it the right way. Maybe we cut corners because we don't have the right equipment or the equipment, equipment may be faulty. And then we have this perception that it's, it, it's safe and everybody's doing it, so it must be okay. This is the most riskiest type of behavior that we have. And it's actually the most most um, prevalent type of behavior that you have in, in any type of environment. When we have just human behavior, uh, human error, that's drift. And often we can, we're able to reorientate uh, an individual when we see it. But the, the key is that we, we, we catch it, we correct it, and then we try to adhere with better behavior. Yes, it's normal. But of course, with poor management and that individual, you have to be aware of your behavioral choices and then and then readjust and and um, make sure that you do the correct uh, correct protocol or policy. And the the two most common reasons for drift is if I don't have to do all those steps, I can accomplish more. Or Actually, it's not as risky as we think. We put all those extra layers of, of, of safety protocols because we had a sentinel event. And I think the risk team or somebody else came in and they put all those extra steps in, but really it, it's not any safer. So I, I've just made a conscious decision and I, we don't need all those extra steps. You see how we, we convince ourselves and our perceptions? It's a choice. It's a behavior and a choice that we make. So for just culture, our behavioral objects, objectives are that you know humans are going to make, make mistakes and we have to manage the behavioral choices that we make to achieve the outcomes that we desire. When we have a drift in the culture, we need to bring it back because we don't want unsafe practices. We want to coach everyone around us. We want to remind one another. We want to be a team so we can help each other to, to reach that, that juncture. And then we want to all feel safe to speak up, stop the line when it's necessary. 
Um, I think that there is a problem. Sometimes we don't want to speak up. And that's where we see when we have a lot of these sentinel events or adverse events, we find that many layers of safety were dismissed or ignored and nobody spoke up, but everybody knew something was off that given day. So again, we, we've created a culture of this and now it's time for us to take that back and, and empower our people. So before I, I move on to culture of safety, which goes hand in hand with just culture, does anybody have any questions before I move to the second part of this? Trustees, any questions? Not for me, no. And none for Lewis as well. All right. Thank you. Keep it coming, thank you. Okay, so now you ask yourself, so so hey Darshan, what are you guys doing to ensure that you know we have a culture of safety or you know you're trying to promote a just culture? Because you obviously have you know some feelings about this, you're very passionate. So um I, I feel I was very privileged to come here about a little over two years ago. And I myself have learned a great deal. And I really appreciate the organization in embracing and uh, embracing a lot of the, the methodology that I've been able to, to share and, and, and be given the autonomy to bring, bring this message to all of you. So we, we um, have been privileged to um, be the department that gets the safety alerts. I think that's a real privilege and honor and to be able to assess those safety alerts and see where the gaps the gaps are and, and how we can help the organization. Once we get the safety alert, it's definitely an opportunity for us to use a root cause analysis or a root cause investigation process so we can continue to learn as an organization. Because at face value, a lot of those events tell a totally different story after you start talking to the people that were involved in the care. Thirdly, we try to look at opportunities to create systemic improvement. We want to really get away from the blaming, the shaming, because all that does is shut people down. You are never going to solve a problem by blaming people. You want to understand why was it, why did you make the choice to do what you did in the circumstances that you were in? Because you can really uncover a lot of detail. So we're, we're using that information to improve the organization as a whole. And then we really wanna have a tight, tight, strong partnership with our operational leaders. They're the ones who really know the nuts and bolts of what is happening at the ground level. We look for them to, to gain insight, knowledge, and really make the improvements that are necessary. They not only know the problems, most of the times they know all the solutions, but they have, have built a culture where they feel that they're not being heard and that's this is what's resulted. It's actually re resulted and erupted into a problem. And then once we figure it out collectively, then put safer systems in place where we can sustain that and we can have regulatory compliance and we can continuously grow on that. We just don't change it and be done with it, we continuously build on that. So that's been part of our foundation in the patient safety department over the last two years. And I feel it's been effective, even though there's a lot of work still to do, but it, it created a foundation that wasn't originally there. What we've seen in the last two years, because data, data is the only way we can see is if we're effective, 
when in the first uh, uh, graph here in the left hand side is the harm rate. So we measure the harm. Uh, the harm rate is anything from A through I. So any safety alert that comes in, we give it a significance. Anything from E through I means that it reached the patient, it created harm, and there needed to be some intervention, whether it was temporary, permanent, or it resulted in a patient's death. So E through I is what we really focus on because in, in most cases, we feel we could have prevented that. So with a lot of the work that we've done and we've learned from our operational leaders and everybody that's been involved in the root cause analysis and all of these events, we have seen a significant decline in the harm rate that's that's been happening from year to year. So we're really, really happy that that the organization is embracing this. And, and most importantly, the frontline, the frontline staff that are doing the work every day are embracing it. And then when we look at the next graph, which talks about the overall hospital acquired harm index, which has a lot of different harm, um, harm metrics that uh, Annette Johnson reports out uh, every month. And that's like a falls, happies, um, all kinds of uh, composites of harm. Even that has dropped because people are more aware of how to prevent the harm and provide safer care. And then thirdly, I just want to show these are actually um, the third graph is actually different uh, uh, SBUs within our organization and how every SBU has demonstrated uh, changes in their overall harm rate. If you look at even ambulatory care, they used to have a harm rate of 12% of the total of their actual safety alerts. They're down to 2%. And each of the areas, even in the acute care setting where we have most critical high-risk patients, we went from uh, the high 5% to the 2%, 2.7%. So we are seeing it across the organization and every SBU, which is where we want to go. Now, a facet of the culture of safety is utilizing a safety attitude questionnaire, which is our score survey, which is administered by a very highly reliable organization called Safe and Reliable, who partner with our beta health group, and they implement an independent um, uh, independent survey of our organization to see how the culture of safety looks. We have learned a tremendous amount from that culture survey. So firstly, I want to share with you, um, we didn't have one this year because of COVID, but we had it three consecutive years in a row. We were able to get almost a 70% response rate, which was really fantastic for our organization. So uh, the patient safety team, we went out, we marketed, we, we tried to encourage people. We wanted to hear what they had to say. So we were really glad with the response rate. What we gained from that was there were three major areas. Now, most of the areas, the domains that we uh, evaluated, there was nine domains. All of the domains, we saw a, a, a reduction in the overall score of, this, uh, of the safety culture, okay? So I just wanna be transparent with, the, with everyone. We saw a decrease in the score, meaning that we were actually doing worse 
from the most recent uh, findings from the prior first year and second year. Okay, so I just want to make that clear the direction of the data. And we saw the, the, the worst um, metrics in the burnout climate, teamwork, and the safety climate. So those are the three domains that showed the lowest score in our organization. So we knew right away, we've got a lot of work to do. Even though when we were having Sentinel events, we saw that the harm rates were going down, but we still, we still had a lot of work to do with the frontline staff because they were saying something totally different, okay? Darshan, this, yes. is, this is Taft. Do, do we have comparator data? Because I presume they, they, they have the survey in many other organizations, is that true? Yes, yes, and 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 actually, um, uh, Dr. Bouquet, in the three areas that I'm going to share with you today, we were very low as far as um, benchmarking against other other organizations. Um, we were in the low teens as far as percentile. Got it. Um, so, so we I knew that there was a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, in those domains. So I, like I had mentioned to the team, burnout, burnout, teamwork, and then the safety climate were the areas that we scored the lowest. Okay. So what I, what I want to share with, um, with, with the team, uh, give me one second. I have a few notes here. There were three areas that were opportunities for improvement, three main um, areas that, that that safe and reliable had had actually extrapolated from all the data um, that they had collected, and there were cultural opportunities that we had. One was th 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 these are the three things that we look we scored the lowest, and we were in the below ten percentile, all as benchmarked across across. I don't know. I don't know the total benchmark, how many organizations were involved, and I can get that data this year. But that's across benchmarked across other organizations. The first one was. It was it, the question was, I would not feel safe being treated here as a patient. That's very telling. Okay, so those people that are doing the work, providing the care they themselves are saying i'm not i would not feel safe because what they see okay so that that's very telling to me that there's a lot of work to be done the second one disagreements in the workplace are not appropriately resolved okay so when things happen as an organization what are we doing to to listen and address those things when 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 i can only say from a patient safety perspective when adverse events happen, do we actually listen to the staff, listen to the providers and say, oh, you didn't have the right equipment or you didn't have the right people or you didn't have the right training? Well, what do we need to do to change that? And the third things, third thing, errors are not handled appropriately in the work setting. So when bad things happen, are we fixing them? Are we hiding them? Are we brushing them under the carpet? So I know as a patient safety leader and an advocate for safe care, there's a lot of work to do and, and, and I know we can do it. I know we can move the, move the dots because it's getting engagement of the right people, the right, have empowering our frontline staff, 
getting them involved and helping them be part of the solution, not just telling them what needs to be done. Flattening the hierarchy and really getting in there with, with the teams and helping them. Because remember when I shared the data a couple of months ago and I showed you when we were doing continuous survey readiness rounds? And when we first started those rounds back in March, the compliance of those 45, 50 elements that we were assessing them was at 20 to 30% compliance. And by engaging the frontline staff and the leaders at the frontline, the operational leaders, we were able to get them all sustained at 90 or above consistently. We weren't doing the work for them. We were just empowering them and fixing their homes themselves by giving them the tools, giving them the education, and really listening to them. What do you need to be successful? And that's the same thing we can do here. They're already telling us what's broken. It's a matter of us listening and helping them fix that. Okay. Now I need to calm down and get my heart to stop racing. And I'm going to hand it, off to my colleague. It's passion. I, I am. I and I'm sorry. I, I can't don't, even don't, don't, don't be sorry. It's passion. I, just, I know, I know there's so much goodness in this organization, and I cannot express gratitude enough gratitude to this board and the executive leaders that have allowed me to speak so openly and with autonomy. Um, because I I I I just want to make a difference and I know we can get there. And so with that, I'm gonna hand off to my dear colleague, Hazel Gillian, and she's gonna share some of the things that they've done with the medical staff with this Thank work. Thank you, Darshan. Thank you very much. We'll open up for questions later. Welcome, Hazel. Oh, Hazel, I are need, you mute? I need to stop sharing. No, or Hazel, I can just progress, for, progress to the next screen for you. That, that might be easy. Hazel, you here? Uh-oh. We see you talking. We uh, have no audio. Sorry, Hazel. Tanvera, give me a voice check. Yours isn't working either. Maybe, maybe I Hazel, did you, uh, did you uh, uh, unmute your phone by chance? Okay, uh, I can pinch it. Um, this is what my team does to me. Their communication goes down. This is the second time in a week. And, <laughs> but Hazel would do such a much nicer job. Uh, Hazel? Are you guys you close to, to each other? No, uh, Hazel, why don't you call, call in and I'll get started. Is that okay? Tanvir, should I stop sharing and then maybe that will help? I don't think that's it. Hazel, it looks like you're in the office on the 12th floor. Why don't you either try to log back in or go down to Darshan's office and I'll go ahead and get the presentation started um, until one of those uh, two occurs, okay? Um, so I'm um, sad that uh, Hazel is unable to present this, but hopefully she'll be able to check in because um, uh, what Hazel was gonna share with you was really an illustration of the way um, that just culture um, can be embedded into the daily work um, that, that we do in leaning into uh, learning opportunities, thinking about systems, uh, and still driving accountability in a way that um, is honest about the opportunities uh, we have to grow, but still 
uh, feels collaborative and good uh, to do it. Um, so, um, uh, so the medical staff actually implemented um, the, or integrated Just Culture scoring into peer review. Um, I think when I first arrived, they were beginning to have those conversations. So that would be almost three years actually on in, in November. Um, what uh, um, the medical staff um, um, helped identify is that there were different scoring mechanisms in the way that cases are reviewed in peer review um, at the different campuses um, and that the focus was really on harm. Um, was uh, harm um, uh, experienced by the patient and, and, and whether or not there was a deviation from the standard of care. As um, Darshan presented to you, um, one of the key um, differences between in just culture, hey, though, just let me know when you're back in. One of the key Oh, can you hear me? Oh, did I hear you? Yay. Oh, perfect. Okay, cool. So I got you through the background and you can take over with the timeline. All right. Thank you so much. And I apologize for the audio issue. No, no problem. Uh, all right. Please, so please, this journey, I think Darshan knows the, who owns the slides. Is Darshan will advance for you? I will. Okay, got it. Yes. And it's only two slides, Dr. Bouquet. So yes, um so this journey of just culture um, started in 2018 with um, the med, with med staff leaders, specifically the chief of staff uh, during that time and um, other identified uh, med staff leaders um, meeting for several retreats as we called it um, to discuss and evaluate the current state of peer review across the facilities. What we've done as a, a, a the work group did an extensive literature review, you know, to understand nationally uh, what is the trajectory of peer review. We also did um, outreach, like called different hospitals to understand, um, you know, what's their current status, and especially those that have adopted just culture. So after several retreats, extensive lit literature review, latter part of 2018, a decision was made of by the work group to, to adopt just culture. And, and so that was presented to the MEC and was approved by all of the, by the three hospitals. Moving on to implementation, since this is such a, a, a paradigm shift, all of the QRC and department chairs um, needed to get acquainted, be uh, trained on the just culture. And so we were able to avail of webinars and made that available to them um, so that everybody has the same foundational knowledge. Alameda Hospital um, volunteered to be the, to do a pilot study uh, in January and February, 2019, wherein we were doing dual scoring, um, <clears throat> the previous scoring, uh, but also um, scoring the same case using the proposed just culture scoring. After two months of um, pilot, we analyzed feedback from, from that uh, and, um, you know, tweaked the, you know, some of the um, scoring and um, it was decided that April 2019, we were ready to roll out system-wide. Next, next slide, please. Okay. So it's been 15 months since we have uh, transitioned to just culture scoring uh, for peer review. So the outcomes are we have we have standardized it across the system. We've been able to generate uh, me meaningful quarterly reports 
um, which allows us to identify trends and patterns uh, on, on the kinds of events that we're seeing, but also, you know, if there are patterns at the provider level. There's also increased provider coaching. Again, the goal of just culture is continuous learning. There is, you know, com clear communication of, of performance ex expectations so that we could move the provider to improvement. We also saw uh, a reduction in hospitalizations as there are more um, openness in, in discussing the cases and sharing clinical pearls. And finally, one of the things that we really uh, have started doing is identifying and following up on any system issues that have been identified out of the peer review discussion. Any questions? Trustees, any questions? So, so to to both of you, I, I, I and to actually all three of you, Tanvir, you have a great team, and you know we've talked about that before. Uh, appreciate, you know, we we want people to show up as their best and bravest selves. So it's it's not easy to bring uh, to always shine the light, but it, 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 I think ultimately it helps us. So. How do you guys contextualize these data? What do we? What are our next steps, really? What what do, what does this organization do with regard to safety and culture and the like? Um, well, Dr. Bouquet, I I know that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's. Are you talking? Maybe Tanvir can. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're talking big picture, as far as all the safety, um, the collaboration of our. So, Darshan, I'll put that one to you. For what? What are the easy next steps? Not not necessarily the big okay. ones. What, what are the simple? That. What are the what are the baby steps? Okay, baby steps. So, I'm I would really um, request uh, that the board. Um, so this was this was presented to the executive leadership team and generated a lot of robust discussion. And right. That, um, they were uh, very much a proponent of moving forward. So that's why we wanted to also share this information with the Board of Trustees. So um, we have drafted a policy, which um, we would like to now sit with um, uh, intimate groups of the executive leadership team to sort of look at the policy to ensure that it does meet the intent and that it, it is going to be feasible for our organization. So that's going to be our next step that um, Tanvir and I will meet with uh, maybe the group of all the CAOs and then um, HR and other groups. So we're gonna, so that everybody has, a, everybody has an opportunity to brainstorm and um, share their thoughts and ideas because we wanna, we want to do it properly and we want to make sure everybody has a voice. Uh, because it is a huge shift in the culture and the expectations of the organization. Once we get um, full uh, commitment and buy-in from everyone, um, our beta health partners will um, assist us and they will help create um, modules, learning modules that will be uh, provided for all directors and managers so that they understand what their role is in implementing a just culture and how to read the algorithm and how to apply it. So there's going to be some robust um, web uh, Zoom uh, and, and they will do as, as much as we need as an organization so that we are confident in, in the implementation of this. 
And then there will be an e-learning module, which they will help us create with the experts um, on at, from Outcomes Ingenuity. They are the ones that founded a lot of the uh, uh, of these um, theories and the algorithm that we will use. So they're going to utilize the same algorithm, which is evidence-based and very uh, reputable across the nation, and they will create a module so that it's mandatory training in 2021 for our staff. Everyone has to go through that e-learning uh, so that they also know what the expectations are and, and, have a, and we have a common understanding. Then going forward, um, Dr. Bouquet, because just culture is a little tricky. Sometimes you're on the fence wondering like, was that really human or was that at risk? Or, you know, so sometimes we, our biases get in the way and it, it can be a little bit difficult. So Beta is willing to also do quarterly um, sessions where leaders, managers, directors, we can all come and share scenarios, work through them and learn from each other because it's very, it's a, it, it's a difficult, difficult model sometimes to interpret. It's not as black and white. So they really are invested in our success um, in, in promoting this. And, and um, I, I do want to share though that I, I don't know how many of the trustees are aware of the heart domains that data um, incentivizes our organization. So there are five domains that they um, uh, incentivize an organization. And if you meet the criteria of the domain, you are actually given back 2% of your premium. The caveat is just culture is so important that it actually is a requirement of each of the five domains because they feel it is fundamental to have that just culture um, methodology in your organization for you to actually even be successful in rapid investigations, care for the caregiver, all of those other domains that are, that are also equally important, but just culture they feel is the most important. So it, it, it will only make us better, stronger, and, and, and meet some of the needs of some of the gaps that we're, that we're seeing. Darshan, thank you on that. Uh, were you in the uh, discussion previously about the articles from the chairs about the marble moving around? Did you hear about that? No. Okay. There's an analogy that 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 uh, that organizations tend to can move, but they often reset back to their baseline. We talked about that earlier today, and the, and the concept is put a marble in a bowl, right? And you can nudge that marble, and it can spin around but it often resets back to where it was before. Uh, so the, the, the assertion of this article is sometimes you got to break the bowl. Uh, so my question to you, Darshan, how do we know that the marble won't reset back where it was after all these efforts? I'm not asking you easy questions today. I know, I'm sorry. Okay, I, and this is my personal take. I mean, I, you know, that's all, that's all I know. <laughs> You're sitting in the chair. <laughs> um, I feel that um, I feel that there's a lack of accountability, and there's no consequences for bad behavior. And so, until you put that fundamental framework in place, people don't have any incentive to change. Nobody. I just told you the three top things that the survey showed: errors are not addressed, people are not held accountable. So when you hold people accountable, 
they're going to change their behavior. Otherwise, they won't survive. And it's better to be with the, the, the masses rather than be an outlier and create havoc. So I think those, those main things, accountability, and if you, if you don't comply, like if you don't comply with the law, there's consequences. But I don't see those consequences sometimes here because I, I have honestly, I actually tallied it up and we have done 137, 137 RCAs and RCIs collectively since I've been here. Every single RCA or RCI has identified some accountability issues either with an individual or organization-wide. If we were able to address that with a policy and expectations, then people would know what they need to do. But right now people don't know what they do because those expectations are not clear. So if I make a mistake, yeah, I might get my wrist slapped, but it's okay, you know, I mean, you know, it's okay. I, at least I didn't kill the person, you know, kind of, I mean, I'm exaggerating. No. There has to be framework. There has to be consequences because with that, we will excel. We will, we will get to where we want to go. Nothing great happens with meteorocracy. It happens when we are pushed, when we are pushed to do our best. I, I appreciate Darshan, you saying that because I was thinking when you had to slide up of the three, uh, sort of the continuum of issues. I don't know if you could bring that slide up again. Darshan, can you go back to that? Maybe three before, I think. Because That's I think your point is related to what my reflection was. No, it's uh, one more forward. Uh, sorry, <laughs> the other forward. <laughs> it's in the previous, uh, it's in the just culture. You just Next. tell me when to start. There we go, right there. <laughs> So you had made a point, Darshan, I just want to underline this, that most of the issues rely fall in the middle because it's just human nature, as I think you said, that, that fits my experience in my the organization I run. This is a place where we... But I also have experience as an administrator for 26 years, and I'll reflect on my experience here in a moment, that if you don't deal with the behavior in a fair, proportional, and consistent manner. It also impacts the yellow because it allows people to uh, assume that there's no North Star, really. There is no um, consequences if you wander from yellow into red. So I think it, it bolsters, it actually increases the amount of behavior issues that are coachable to happen because you have a culture now that just slides off. Mm -hmm. I've been here three years involved in this system, and I can tell you I have never been part of a system or an organization with as I long for the moments when people talk about accountability. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to your uh, word map, uh, I, and I'm not picking on you, but I actually think this word map is is sort of revealing. The word accountability is almost unreadable, so small. And I think for, for Alameda Health System to proceed in the future, it's got to figure out a way to make accountability equal to patient right in the center. Mm -hmm. 
of everything we do. Um, it's not good enough to, to say, in my heart, I care about patients. It's got to be also about understanding where the bumpers are, where the boundaries are. And I think we really struggle with that. And I would just wrap up by saying, you know, we're in a storm right now. There's going to be some massive changes. Um, and I hope they're for the better. Quite frankly, I really do. Because the citizens of Alameda need this system to work better. Um, but they could get worse, actually. I hope they get better. But they could get worse. And what you just presented is at the center of this. Um, and somehow we have got to uh, get to a place where we certainly speak to our self-interests. This system is great at that. All the stakeholders really know how to speak to their interests, but also are able to start with the framework of how we're being accountable to patient care, to quality patient care. We have a lot of work to do here. So I, I, I am... Uh, it's not a prayer, but it's a wish. It's a deep desire that um, over the next several years, we'll begin to really make a shift in that in that direction. Thank this you. It's a crucial moment. It is a crucial moment. Trustee Hernandez. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry for going off camera a lot. I've got a pinched nerve in my neck, so I've got to ice my back, but I'm trying to do that graciously here. Mm -hmm. um, Darshan, one of the things that I would ask you to consider is to create a pledge uh, around safety, something that every person signs at the hospital, uh, anyone who's touching patients, anyone. Because uh, in my journey uh, around inclusion and diversity and trying to create a place where people feel like they belong, feel that they're included, it really is going to take every single person understanding what that looks like. What does that mean? And putting some action, you know, signing a document is, of course, just a symbolic gesture. But you'd be surprised how much that can create a conversation. And if everyone has that posted around their office or near their station, that pledge of safety uh, is a good reminder of what you're trying to do here. And I would encourage you to sit down and think about what would that pledge look like to you? What would you wish every person who touches a patient's life say and know and feel and experience about safety? And bring that together so that, you know, hopefully the powers that be um, allow for that to be something that everyone signs, places on their desk or something of the sort, and then reminding people often, this is the pledge we took to provide the most high quality of care in the safest way. And, you know, here's a moment where I think we're not doing that or we could do better. Um, it'll spark those kinds of conversations to shift the culture. And um, it's that bowl that's going to have to change as, as the analogy goes through this meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, from, from Hazel's presentation, thank you, Hazel. Um, the metrics, to, to recall, on the metrics were only for doctors, right? Is, is this an opportunity again for, for these same metrics across the organization? Do we consider this in our yeah. HR reviews? Mm -hmm. 
Is that true? Um, it's only for physicians? For the, for the current um, scoring, of course, is um, only for peer-reviewed uh, cases uh, involving providers. Okay. So, so uh, again, what's great is in, in the marketplace of ideas, there's, there, there are a lot of ideas and opportunities for us um, to, to help shape culture. And, and all, all due respect to policies and procedures, because I know they're hard to write, but a policy and the draft of a policy and procedure does not make it so. So we have, we have lots of opportunity here. Um, uh, any members of the quality team, has anyone ever heard of the Behavioral Insights Unit? The Behavioral Insights Unit is actually a, a, a government organization in the UK, and and it's 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 built uh, by behavioral psychologists, who who the, the the moniker for the Behavioral Insights Unit is called the Nudge Unit. Uh, there's a lot of great studies on the Nudge Unit, and it's how they shape behavior, and and the uh, the return on investment on this unit has apparently been in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, system design, making it actually hard for people to fail, not 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 being defensive, being proactive, making it really hard for someone to fail. And I think these are the discussions that we should continue to have as we as we move forward. What are the ways in which we can move our culture towards high reliability? Maybe they, they the discussion on behavioral economics is a really important one, you know. <laughs> Behavioral economics, the Nobel Prize has been given out twice for it in the past 15 years. And, and, and the essence of it is that human beings, uh, the great folly is that human beings are cognitive creatures with emotional capacity. That's what humans think. But the reality of what the behavioral economists tell you, the Nobel Prize winning economist, Daniel Kahneman, we're emotional creatures with cognitive capacity. And we, that subjects us to often behave against our own best interests. And I think that happens a lot in the organization. Uh, we behave against the interest of the organization sometimes. And I think that's a, a great opportunity for the collective and royal we. I appreciate you guys on that on that presentation. I, I hope we can continue to have this on a regular and perhaps daily basis at, on, on the unit level, because that's the stuff I think which uh, is essential to guiding us. With that, I'm going to close out item E and we will go into item F, regulatory affairs and patient safety. So Darshan, you're back on again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I don't know what page it's on. I don't need to project it, right, uh, Dr. Bouquet? You, you know, um, you have some great, a few great slides if you wouldn't mind projecting. Okay. My, my favorite slide of yours, uh, I think was like on page 135. Okay, let me just uh, let me just bring it up and then I can. Um, so sorry. Um, okay. Is everyone? Is yes, ma'am. That's great. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, okay, uh, so just a overview of uh, the safety alerts. We're still seeing a downward trend in the volume. Um, it's a, it's approximately, um, it's, it's actually only 4% lower as calculated uh, 
by a quarterly basis for the overall projected. So we are gaining some traction because uh, last year we were down 11%, but for this first quarter, we were down 4% for a projection of, of uh, getting bouncing back. So, um, uh, but again, we want to still stimulate a culture of reporting and get that up higher, especially near misses. Um, this is dropping, uh, which is our harm rate. Um, so we're, we're seeing uh, good improvement there and we hope to continuously improve. Uh, first quarter looked good. We had 13 E events only. We did not have F through I at all uh, this past month. Of the 13 events, um, five were patient behavior related, four were med related, two skin events, one lab delay and one med delay. So none of the events caused any permanent harm. It was temporary, it was monitored and the patient had returned back to baseline. Um, so we were really happy that we didn't have any adverse outcomes. Uh, the the um, like as you can see, the trends are pretty consistent month to month. Um, I just want to point out here the number two category in events, the risk events are patient behavior, but the number three category is staff and provider behavior. So when I look at that. A just culture would really address that because a lot of the safety alerts we get, it's like, oh, the doctor was rude to me or the nurse didn't treat me nice or somebody didn't hand off. But a just culture sets the, the parameters and the expectations for people to, uh, uh, to the behavior to be appropriate. So I, I see this as a pretty high volume that we, we can possibly correct in the future if we set expectations. Um, again, I'm really happy. No F through I events at all in this last month. Patient relation events uh, have been pretty consistent. We have a couple of um, about four or five patients that have been very, very uh, vocal. Have been um, they have no quality of care issues, but they're they're uh, having uh, some major issues understanding that the care was appropriate. Um, there was no harm, there was no harm outcomes, but they have become quite problematic for the patient relations department. And we're really trying to work with the providers and other people that can help uh, direct the conversation. I know Dr. Bouquet has been involved in several of the conversations with patient relations and the, the patient that, that just needed the provider to come and intervene and have that discussion with the patient. So they wanted, we, to, be, they wanted, they wanted to be heard and they, they deserved it. And, and I think um, that's the, because that's been very effective, Dr. Bouquet, um, I think our strategy is going to be to involve the providers more early on rather than try to mitigate the issues, especially the ones that are problematic, because then they come to the Board of Trustees. But we have worked tremendously with them and still have not been able to satisfy what their needs are. Um, so again, if you look at even patient relations, Staff professionalism is number three. So again, we need to have clear expectations of what we expect from our staff and when they interact with our patients, because these are all patient events, patient grievances that have been filed. The number three category is staff professionalism. So again, just culture can hopefully address some of those issues. Um, when we come here, this is just a synopsis of the A through H 
I did not come on here, uh, Dr. Bouquet, because we've had no I one, so the system does not generate that I category, and that's the reason why it's not, it did not list on there. But this is um, the fiscal year up to date. Darshan, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, this is my favorite slide because it really, <laughs> it really helps to give a picture of the individual patients, right? It's not a percentage. Each of those numbers is a person. My, yes. my, my submission is, please consider I, um, putting there, because we want to keep seeing zero, 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 zero. Absolutely. Zero. We'll, and, we'll, make the, we'll make the technical fix on the back end to and, and, and my other favorite part of this slide is it educates, right? Because uh, this language can be difficult for the layperson. Heck, I've been doing this for a couple of years now and it's still difficult. So when we're talking about E harms and F harms and G harms and H harms and I harms, this gives us context, it educates, and it provides us a great set of robust data. So no, none of us should want, uh, we, we can say we don't want to see uh, e, F, G, H, or I, but particularly I, H, G. <laughs> and, and I think that's, this is, this is sort of my, uh, I, I would think, I would consider this to be your leadoff batter uh, in your, in your <laughs> slide set because it, uh, it really gives a context about individual patients um, from my perspective. So and thank then, you, thank you for keeping that slide. Dar Darshan, Darshan, I look, can you scroll back? Uh, I think this is a closed agenda packet so we can stop the uh, presentation here. Oh, oh okay. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, we're good. So that that was that. So that table is the last table of the open session. Yeah, they um, call it. Yeah, we'll keep that for closed session. And that, that so concludes thanks. my presentation. Okay. Um, trustees, any questions for Darshan on on um, safety? None. Thank Darshan, you. you. Sorry, did someone? I, yeah, I, I just said thank you. Oh, thank got you. it. Always, always appreciate your report. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate all of you too. Thank you. So Darshan, you know my question, right? I ask every time, I, I ask you to rank list, rank order your top concerns. Last month, do you remember what you said? I think it you was said, just culture. Very good. You said number one, just culture, number two, safety culture, and number three, reliability. What, what do you have to say for your presentation this month? Until until we do something about it, it has to be the same. Okay. Darshan, thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Okay. Good job today. Nilda, hi. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Trustee Burkett and all the trustees of the committee. Good afternoon. Thanks, Nilda. We look forward to your report. Yes. Sorry. We got a little bit of a of a glare on the backside. So um, I'm going to talk. It's been a robust uh, a bit of activity in regulatory affairs, despite uh, just a little, just a little bit, just a little, <laughs> just a little. Yeah. And my team are moving very fast, and uh, we fortunately have a supportive uh, a supportive leadership uh, group that um, that supports us at AHS. So uh, we're well, doing our is best. It, is it possible to put up your? Uh, actually, oh, there's yes, a lot of. If I'm allowed to share my screen, yes, I'll do that. A lot of it is text, but but it's it's something to talk around because it's it, it's good text. Are you able to see this? Yes, ma'am. Okay, great, great, great. Okay, great. All right, so um, I'm just going to do a brief uh, follow up on uh, the Joint Commission survey updates. Um, 
We did have a conversation um, at the time that I sent this uh, to the board. Uh, we had been given a go uh, for survey date of November 9th. Uh, given the holiday that falls during that week and my conversation, I went back to the Joint Commission. That date has been moved to November 16th. So I so apologize for that uh, omission from the packet. Um, it came in after we had sent the packet to be published. No worries. So, no. so Monday, November 16th, it opens? Monday, November 16th is the go date. Yes, and what that means is that within 30 days of that date, we will have an unannounced visit to complete our follow-up survey. Um, it will be a four-day survey with two surveyors. Previously, we uh, it was uh, discussed to be a three-day survey, but it is in total a four-day survey. One day for the condition level findings um, from CMS, and then the remaining three days will be for the um, standard compliance um, and um, elements of performance from the Joint Commission standards and to address the RFIs. So um, we must be successful. I don't think I need to belabor that point. Um, daily monitoring is continuing and we're gonna work on assuring those remediation plans are hardwired and compliance is sustained. So I'm gonna go on into some of the efforts that we've done on monitoring. Um, so we've worked on monitoring a sustainability phase process. And then we also have folks that are in the RPIW. Those folks that have had their consecutive four months of a goal have been moved to sustainability and those people are continuing to monitor. The conversation that we've had with those folks has been very, pro, pro, I would say positive and very proactive in that they are really working with us hand in hand to analyze any fallouts. We look for any specifics and any trends. We communicate those opportunities to them and we encourage them to escalate to ELT for any immediate remediation or assistance that they may need. It's actually proving quite well and people are doing well. Uh, we have no worries uh, for those groups, but we are staying on top of those areas of high risk, um, such as the emergency department, procedural areas, sterile processing, the operating room, and we're also looking at the um, demonstration of patient rights, our consents, um, use of interpreters those activities. So we are very engaged with that group. But the other group that we've been uh, working very, uh, very um, diligently with is the group of metrics that haven't met sustainability. And we put those people into a rapid performance improvement work cycle. So they've all had to come up with corrective action plans and we've encouraged them to collaborate with their other operational leaders to escalate any non-compliance they're, they're seeing with their partners. And when I say their partners, it's like, for example, we may have a finding around infection prevention, but it may be related to the cleanliness of an area. Or, um, and so you need, it may be EVS and it may be the infection prevention team that's um, watching that metric, but we need the operational leaders, we need the front end staff, we need the supervisors, the managers and directors to help with that. Um, same thing would be the opposite if it was an environmental care finding, um, something related to um, ceiling tiles. Well, there, you know that would be something where we need reported, we need active reporting to a facility so they can remediate and correct those things. So that's what I mean when the operational partners. So the goal is to immediately address any fallouts as a part of the active daily management and to continually demonstrate the evidence of standard compliance. So to support that work, we've actually provided folks in appendix, and I can show my appendix A, uh, we've actually provided a, what we call a go for survey packet. As soon as that information was announced, we distributed to leaders the following materials, and that would be um, the resurvey prioritized work plan, a coaching prep schedule, 
We gave them an updated sweep list for the daily use and active management. We provided the providers with a sweep list. We have a provider sweep list that's specific to medical staff. We actually then updated our KSA, which is our knowledge skill assessment, and we put out a survey tip sheet. And that's Appendix A. I'm just going to show you this. Um, gosh, it's very large, so let me make it a little smaller so you can see that. Um, but this is the work plan step that we sent. So there was a checklist that was sent to leaders to begin preparing. So hopefully we've provided enough materials that people have a, a roadmap to follow to getting ready for Go Survey. Um, and then, as I alluded, this was the sweep list for success. We also provided um, a checklist for providers. This is for medical and health staff. Um, Hope that everyone found this useful and helpful. Um, and then we provided our coaching prep schedule. So we've actually been going out as a team um, and doing initiating some follow-up. We got a little bit uh, waylaid with due to the unexpected work stoppage, but we're back on there and we've been going back out and we will continue to go out every day until the Joint Commission comes back. Um, I'll go back to my presentation. Um, oh, I did want to show one thing and um, this was the KSA. Um, all right. So one of the things that I'd like to report out and I'm very happy about is the RPIWs. Um, as, as I said, we had a group of about 28 metrics that had not met sustainability and we put them into this active plan. We met with them, we discussed the metrics that weren't meeting compliance, we offered coaching on how they could improve their work process and how they could come up with strategies to actually turn those metrics into a positive direction and meet goal. And we have actually noted improvement across the majority of all of those metrics. Um, I, it's inter I, I actually was surprised when I did the analysis that I looked at the number of metrics in August that were compliance was numbered in 10 of that 28. In September, it was 22. That's an improvement of 102 percent, excuse me, 120 percent. Actually, I think I did my math wrong. It's 100. I'm not quite, I'm going to have to go back to check my math. I wish somebody, I wish I'd saw that, but I think I have a typo here. 120. Um, thank you. It is 120. I undersold myself. Thank you, Dr. Burkett. Uh, my team's been working very hard, and also the operational leaders have been working very hard. So I, I'm going to have to let them know it's 120. Um, and then those that were non-compliant were 18, and that number got reduced to six. So what I want to show and what I've been messaging back out to those leaders is that the focus and the active daily management and the attention and increased situational awareness made a difference. And that's what we just continue to have to hone in and continue to do from now until just always. We just need to hone in on anything that's not meeting compliance, anything that's not moving in the right direction. That's the kind of work plan that we need to develop. And so do I have any questions at this point? Trustees, any questions? I can't see. I don't think so. Okay. okay. Um, the RFO corrective action plan that was previously reported out in this committee, um, I just want to let folks know that we are continuing to work with the OR leadership. Um, actually, they're doing quite well, and we collected some initial data, uh, quality assurance uh, data in September. Um, and the data collected demonstrated a 92% compliance. Goal was 90, so they're moving in the right direction. We have high confidence that that number will improve in the following months, so we're continuing to collect that data. And we've been rounding with the OR leadership, and they've been extremely engaged in having us present at OR Exec Committee and um, help to just encourage that performance improvement. And so then 
um, during the work stoppage uh, and also be, be during the work stoppage, before the work stoppage, um, I just wanted to share that the Regulatory Affairs Department is also still um, following up on AHS operations and regulatory compliance issues related to licensing. So the H, um, the Highland Urgent Care Clinic got licensed um, in September. We're very happy. We submitted the application to the state. We had a site visit and it was approved. Um, the urgent care clinic. So that was a wonderful completion of work and a wonderful work with our ambulatory care group. Uh, we also got licensed the MRI 3T in Highland, and that was also a wonderful benefit to our community and our patients. Um, during, uh, we've worked with the, um, the COVID quarantine uh, unit um, at Fairmont campus. So H building in Fairmont campus will be an isolation unit that hasn't fully opened yet, but we have uh, had the site visit and it's just, uh, just a few remaining steps need to happen in order for us to um, complete that work, but that will be soon ready to open and we're extremely excited about that. And then um, the work stoppage, we were engaged in the works office. There was some daily monitoring and that we uh, engaged with. As you may have heard during the work stoppage, we had 13 surveyors show up on the first day of the work stoppage um, to talk to us, to engage with us, uh, to find out how we were doing, and really just to assure that we were doing everything we could to assure uh, seamless delivery of service and safe delivery of service to our patients. And actually they closed out that survey uh, with me um, over the phone and said that they had no issues and they were actually quite pleased with the um, with the work that they saw happening with the leaders that they spoke to and with the contingency staff that they spoke with and observed. So overwhelmingly a very positive, successful uh, day, a group of work for all of us. Uh, we should all feel good about what we did for our community under some uh, very um, difficult circumstances. And we are continuing to do some licensing for new projects, ambulatory clinic moves and space planning, um, the expansion of dialysis services at Alameda Hospital, and expanded scope for the cath lab. Um, as you know, we've got some opportunities. Um, we don't have any opportunities for surveys outside of the resurvey for Joint Commission currently, but we have been speaking with uh, the Joint Commission, and um, I believe that our lab surveys will commence in December between December and January. And Dr. Ng and, uh, and um, uh, leadership of lab have been engaged around that. No complaints, no joint commission complaints in September, no activity. That Nilda, is thank you. That was a whirlwind. And it's yes, it was. <laughs> Stop sharing. So um, uh, I'm gonna ask you the question I've been asking you for three months and you've been brave enough to answer. Is this organization ready for its re, uh, resurvey? I think the organization is well prepared in terms of the corrective action and sustainability work that they've done. But honestly, I, it always comes down to performance on the day of. Right. And so being out there um, and seeing a few little missteps here and there where people weren't quite clear, it's really, um, I think, really important that we just continue to provide them with support and education. And also the clarification, reaching back to Hazel and Darshan's uh, presentation, is clearly identifying and clearly articulating the expectations for staff for performance. And so we'll continue to support that. And um, I'm going to be very, very optimistic. Great. And just to refresh for everyone who's heard and as a reminder to trustees, so the new open date is Monday, November 16th. Correct. The, the, the Joint Commission will visit sometime within 30 days, so approximately December 16th. The following week is November 23rd. That's Thanksgiving week. It's a four-day survey, so that's probably not the week. So it, it'll be the week before or a week after. So my next question to you is, uh, or, or Tan, you and or Tanvir, 
uh, as we all recall, governing body was one of the conditional level participation findings. As we all recall, there have been some significant events related to this board of trustees. Is this reportable to the joint commission that what this action from the board of supervisors? Can you, can someone guide me with regard to this question? Because yes. it's fully possible that, the, that this sitting board will not be in place at a joint commission visit. Yes, it is, it is a reportable. It would be considered an organizational change in control or governance. And okay. so that would be reportable. Okay. Uh, and then what are the implications? Should this happen under this board versus a new board? Or, or is this just pure speculation? I don't know. Um, it does, it, war it would be that we have to provide written, once we once everything has been finalized, we would provide them written notification. And at that time, they can decide, um, they would do some internal discussion and it's unreally known. It's hard for me to opine on what actually might transpire. There's a couple of possibilities. Um, it could be something that they wait and discuss during the resurvey. It could be something where they initiate a separate visit to discuss and to come out and uh, meet with us. Um, it could be um, a, a change such that they would then ask us uh, to do some additional work with our accreditation application. Got it. Nilda, I appreciate it. Trustees, any questions for Nilda? Great work as always, and you know it's time to answer your question, right? So, so um, uh, I'm going to ask you to rank list your top concerns. Do you remember what we said last month? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, I, I remember. <laughs> Consistency of competencies, education, and rotators. Yeah, yeah, we had, we had some discussion about rotators. Hmm. Um, I think that was that. Do, can you can you give me your most updated list? I bet you the Joint Commission is probably high up on. Well, I, I think um, I think that um, I think I, I, I think as we get closer to the resurvey and with recent events, I'm I think my biggest concern is do have we made the investments in infrastructure to sustain compliance? I think that's my biggest concern. And then um, I would have say. We? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's an operational leadership question. That's okay. not something that I would be privy to. Okay. I, I think in terms of I can see at the front line with, with folks and with people and education, that part I can see. And I do see our operational leaders making those efforts. But the other types of investments, capital, uh, you know, um, I want standard work, um, setting those expectations. So I'll just give, I'll call that infrastructure investments as your yes. number, number one. Do you have a number two? Number two would probably be um, just the morale of the workforce right now. It's a direct, um, it's a direct impact on how people perform. And I think of the upheaval of the last month and the last several weeks, um, I do, I do have some concern about people feeling good about the work that they do, people not feeling, um, bad about the work that they provide. We do a tremendous service to the community here. And I really, really am proud to be part of AHS and proud of what we do and what we can accomplish. And so uh, I hope that everyone still feels that. I hope that everyone is trying to remember. I, of course, I'm regulatory, so I'm always mm -hmm. the person who is the person when things don't go right or don't go exactly well. But I mm -hmm. never try to lose sight of all the good that is there present. And so I like to try to start with my heart before I run to my head. 
And yeah. sometimes I don't, and Tanvir has to pull me back. But I try, I try to start there. So that I would say that's my second concern. And I guess just the third is just time. So change takes time, and hardwiring these abilities and these good processes takes time. What we do with the rapid performance improvement work was um, really um, a morale boost to my team and really just so gratifying to the leaders to see their performance change and improve so quickly. Um, and with the right amount of coaching, it's just that investment of time as is always the hard part. Um, yes, so that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent Appreciate effort work and very thoughtful. And again, hard and tough and brave work. Appreciate it. Um, so, with that, we uh, if I could, if I could yes, just sir. add a quick comment uh, and from a finance perspective. Um, it's really crucial that we uh, begin to do a, a better job of actually quantifying what those infrastructure needs are. Um, <clears throat> I know there's work being done on that, but I think uh, particularly going forward, uh, there is a lot of deferred maintenance in this organization because we don't have a process with our county partners to really cover capital expenditures uh, adequately. Um, and so I think it's really important on AHS side of this conversation to be able to quantify the need and to you know put in maybe in, in categories of, of uh, urgency um, so that there's a dollar amount attached to a very urgent infrastructure needs. Agreed, Trustee Shaquin. Um, that we're trying to build that interface between quality and finance. And we're not good at it right now, uh, but we, 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 we need to strive to better. Uh, thank you, Nilda. Thank Appreciate you. It. With that, we will close out item F and we'll move into item G. I apologize to Annette Johnson, our quality analytics manager, because we're running short on time. And, uh, but Annette, I wanna at least give you a few minutes. Could you pull up the dashboard for the audience to see? Hi, Annette. Annette, voice check. Oh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Apologies, okay, Annette. Sorry. I'll take the crowd five minutes in the bonus time, if you don't mind. If you can hit us the highlights here for this, for this dashboard. So I guess uh, one of the highlights is that we are seeing some tremendously positive movement in our access metrics in both our observed to expected length of stay and our medium time from decision to admit in the ED. Um, one of the metrics that we're right now looking at is our avoidable days. Um, the case management team is actively working on improving the capture of these days. And so as a result, we're pending that data so we can do an in-depth analysis and make sure that we have an appropriate baseline and an appropriate target. So we should have a proposal in the coming months and reset to reset that baseline moving forward. Um, there's no news or update on the quit metric targets from um, CMS at this time. However, it still is very promising that they will accept the proposal. And if they do accept the proposal, we will be in a position to get 90 plus percent of our funds from quit um, for the 3.5 year. <clears throat> There's tremendous work that's going ongoing for the readmission team. It's a very tough metric, and I would encourage you to read the narrative you have been already because there's a great deal of focus on um, making sure that we understand the causes for readmissions, particularly those that are returned within seven days, and making sure that we're getting 
We're really helping patients make that transition out of the hospital and back into the community with a focus on appointments and um, uh, linking our, patient, our most complex and sick patients up with our care coordination team and our um, care transition team, or complex care teams. Um, sorry, I'm being very abbreviated for my original speech. No, I, I, <laughs> in your light of time. You can blame me that, that my, my time is issue. Apologies. Um, and then um, I just, as far as for our HCAP data, we're temporarily pending the data with the switch to from phone to mail. So we just want to take a chance to uh, take a, a month or so to validate the results and ensure that we have the appropriate certification given this recent change. And again, we should have results in the coming month. But the work continues um, in light of, in spite of this. So um, the patient experience team has been very busy working with environmental care services to make sure that all of the staff have received a um, standardized training in gifts and no past. They have also launched a boot camp for all leaders to participate in to make sure that we have uh, system-wide consistent knowledge of how to improve and patient experience. And the support services team has been the first uh, leadership team to participate in that. Um, then lastly, on role to patient experience, the STEM Center has been working with patient engagement as well as nursing and care transition leaders to really um, role model and practice patient rounding as we know that this is a large driver of both patient satisfaction and also patient safety. And that's my high points. And there, yeah, there are a lot of high points. Uh, for those of you who hadn't read it, it's obvious that Annette put a lot of time in the narrative of this, which precedes the slide by about six pages or so. I, I strongly encourage people to read the narrative of just beyond the dashboard. And then after the dashboard, there are definitions about how we arrive at these data. So I think that that really excellent work is here. As uh, Trustee Hernandez says, if you're not measuring it, you're not managing it. I think this is, is it, it, it's, it's a good start for us. I think this is just data set two or maybe three for the new fiscal. We didn't have any in July, but I think it's it's moving along the way. One question to you, Annette and or Tanvir. Um, uh, we had previously discussed for the first time an equity data set. Can, can, can we revisit that discussion about what that was just to remind all listening about our commitment to putting equity a face of equity uh, on onto our system dashboard, and then can you can you comment on how we're going to actually steward that data set? Our Annette, do you want go ahead, Annette? Yeah, our intention is to take one of the three pillars that access quality and experience um, once a quarter and stratify the data by race, ethnicity, and language. Language, um, and so we were going to begin that in the second quarter of the fiscal year. Got it. So come, what, 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 coming into it. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so we should probably expect that report at the top of Q3 or, 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 or we'll, at the top of Q2, you'll retrospective Q1. Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. So uh, should expect that one. Uh, well, uh, our, our next meeting, as you know, is a little bit short. It's coming up in November. So that might not appear till January, but just for, for all to know, uh, the organization's committed to making, putting equity on the dashboard. It's it's the first, it's our first foray into this uh, and hopefully it'll open the door for other equity measures. Trustees, any questions on, on this True North uh, dashboard for quality? 
Trustee Hernandez. No, I don't have any questions, but thank you so much for bringing up the uh, equity uh, lens that we need to apply to all of this. It's the third E in steep. Mm -hmm. So so let's, uh, with that, we will close out. Uh, Annette, sorry for short, shorting you on that time. I will flip with uh, safety and regulatory affairs for next month. And that way you shouldn't get shorted out. With that, I close out item G. We'll go to item H, which is a very quick item. The planning calendar, I'll, I'll note, if you guys have seen the revision on the planning calendar, given all the circumstances uh, about this and a reset anticipated on the board, I've, I've cleared the planning calendar for uh, QPSC apart from the standard reports. Um, uh, the, the next QPSC chair um, will have uh, the leisure to reset the board, uh, uh, the, the scheduling calendar as, as such. So with that, I will close out item H. Uh, uh, council item I. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, the committee will meet in closed session and consider and approve the credential reports of the medical staff. No further action was taken. Okay, thank you. With that, we close item I. My apologies, five minutes in the bonus time. Um, I hope to see some of your faces in the full board meeting. Uh, uh, trustees, is board meeting 515, right? We. So uh, uh, hope to see everyone's faces in uh, 10 minutes. That ends QPFC for today. Thank you.